0: Play. you're now listening to manage your damn money the podcast I am of course one of the hosts here on this show
1: Ben Carter and I'm joined here by Malcolm what's up Malcolm what's going on everybody uh, Superboy boy Malcolm Etheridge financial expert money guru all that good stuff absolutely absolutely now of course and Ben Carter the host and co-creator
0: of Manage Your damn money and this podcast is just another place where we like to talk about money uh, we think conversations about money are supposed to be easy, fun, and interesting and we do our best to do that for you. Um, We do that in part by talking about news of the day issues that are going on today and how they kind of tie to money tie to things that we can all learn about money Um, but real quick a little bit of life news for for Malcolm this week why don't you just share what happened to you this week
1: that was kind of unfortunate but it was definitely like a life event I don't know if I want to Revisit the whole episode, but I would just say, make sure you guys are are locking your doors and not leave anything uh, desirable sitting out anywhere in your car. You know, these DC streets aren't uh, aren't as friendly as they look on TV. <laughs> Let me just say that. <laughs> so, so, so Malcolm had some stuff
0: taken from his car. Uh, window the- irreplaceable stuff. <laughs> irreplaceable <laughs> stuff. Uh, stuff stolen from his car. They broke in uh ironically he texted me when it happened and it's funny because i had in, the exact same experience when in grad school in syracuse at syracuse university and they took i had a dvd deck that was inside of the car like i bought a honda prelude it was a 1999 honda prelude Ooh, with a stunting st- stunting with 18 inch rims <laughs> and i bought it like that and it had a, a slide out dvd deck so you could like watch dvds on it wow. The only DVD I ever watched on it was a, a live performance thing of Beyonce Beyonce I had. Don't ask me why. I mean, what movies do you watch? I, I had it in there for the music, really. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but that was the only DVD that I ever actually watched was a live Beyonce concert. So you were the
1: original Netflix and chill. <laughs> in the car. Get in the car, watch the Beyonce live DVD. I feel like that. And that was date night. I feel like something
0: like that could have been possible Wow. Now. But, uh, yeah, they took the deck, and I was so mad, but yet so... So, I, did, I didn't end up claiming insurance. Like, I didn't even call my insurance company. I just drove down, like, a mile down the street that day and had them replace the window. Dude, the very first call I made was Geico. Right, but I was in grad school at the time. So, I was like, if I, I was thinking in this way. If I claim this, that means my insurance is going to go up. And in my mind, as a graduate student, I calculated that to
1: be more expensive than actually just paying for the window myself. So my insurance company, well, all of my different insurances, and I have an understanding that if they raise my rate, I'm leaving. (laughs) Like, seriously, literally every six months when I get a notification in the mail that says, you know, we're so happy you chose to automatically renew. I pick up the phone and I call my insurance company and I say, how much of a discount are you giving me? And when they go, uh, like they do every six months, I say, look, I know there's better options out there. If you want me to go ahead and take that chance and start looking, let me hang up the phone. And every time they knock off like 5, 10, 12, something like that. I'm calling Um, my insurance company tomorrow. I'm telling you, it's worth doing. Like every single insurance I have other than my health insurance. Every time it's time to renew and they send you those notices, I call them and say, "All right, what are we talking about? What are you gonna do?" And one time I actually did end up having to leave, but it was for good reason because I ended up saving like forty bucks a month. True. And just didn't even know I had it like that. True. So I remember
0: paying two hundred dollars for to get the window replaced. It was done in maybe like a matter of a couple hours. I, I didn't I didn't miss much of the day after like after I like realized oh the window's broken, my stuff was stolen uh maybe three to four hours and i was back to my day up uh i was so pissed about it though i was like see now i'm about to drive around with no radio because they take stuff in syracuse so i'm not i'm not even gonna have no radio so we
1: would be rolling to the mall no music it's silence just talking <laughs> no see i i don't know i'm still not over it and it's all it's also awkward because i have tents on my on my windows right and so that window is clear <laughs> so, when I was backing up and I looked out that window this morning, uh-huh. it actually looked like the window wasn't there. Right. Because it's so much different than the other windows. The, the new so, window. Yeah. So, uh-huh. I, I don't know. Well, we're, we're sorry to hear that this week, Malcolm.
0: But you'll, you'll be fine. Like, I got it. We'll, we'll see. You'll be all right. Um, so, interesting. That That's our our news and our lives. Uh, but the first story that we're actually talking about in this episode is that child care now costs more than in-state college tuition, which is crazy. Jesus. So, so a CNN money story by Gene Sahadi reports the average cost of daytime care for kids up to the age of like four years old is not $9,589. And that's like a, a national average. And then the national average for in-state college tuition is $9,400. Um, and this was a report released by Think Tank New
1: America. Uh, and that's pretty crazy. That's yeah. This is yeah.
0: for like one kid.
1: Yeah, and that's that's not even a, a thing you can brush off and say, oh that's just cause you live X, Y, and Z. Right. Like that's everywhere.
0: That's everywhere. And interesting, uh you, you, you mentioned where it is. I think in Arkansas was like the cheapest place where I guess the average childcare cost for that age was sixty five hundred dollars a month. And in Massachusetts, the most expensive... A year. A year. A year. This is a year. Okay. What did I say? A month. I said a month. A, a month. year. These, these, these are yearly costs. Oh, okay. These are These are yearly costs. Um, in Massachusetts, where I think that's the highest, the average paid for child care was uh, $16,600. Wow. Which is ridiculous. So so, procreate wisely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, right. Malcolm. Oh, well, right. all of us. All right. Thanks. All Thanks. Well, right. So fortunately... The, the biggest expense I have and the biggest pain in the butt I have is paying car insurance, right? <laughs> like, like, I'm complaining about uh, the fact that uh, I got to take my car to the shop and get a window fixed and it's people out here paying $16,000 a year for child care. And that's for one child. That's for one. So what is it if you have two, like two-thirds... You know, I mean, they may, maybe they have like discounts. You get bundled plans. discounts. <laughs> <laughs> Bring us three kids, we'll give you 50% off. I would, I mean, buy in bulk, right? Like, I would grab another kid <laughs> from the neighborhood and be like, we're just gonna go at this together. Right. Like, uh, so it's interesting. So I know there's a lot of different ways to deal with
0: childcare. Like, there's some people who have nannies, mm-hmm. um, there's some people who have, I guess they hire usually like immigrant ladies. Who, like an au pair? Yeah, 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 that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> and so that w- might be cheaper. Right. And then you also have the benefit if they speak a different language, they can teach the kid that different language. Um, and then you also have like grandma. That's an effective, usually free situation.
1: I was going to say, I think the answer is be nice to your parents. That is the answer. Before you start making babies, get on good terms with your parents. That's <laughs> That's my advice right there. Uh, my my wife was telling me about one of her
0: friends whose parents said, "Nah, <laughs> they can't come over here."
1: I can't guarantee that mine wouldn't either. Say the same thing. I, I I can't guarantee it at this point. You know. Okay. Right. You you remember when you were a kid and well not a kid I guess but you know maybe a teenager and you were feeling yourself a little bit mm-hmm. and your mom said I ain't raising no more babies. <laughs> That doesn't go away just because you become an adult. Just because you grow. That probably gets even more emphasized right. by the time you become an adult. And they get used to, you right. know, doing whatever old people do. I don't she, she told you at 16, I ain't raising no more babies. So oh, then, she, then she like, tells you again at 32. I was probably 10 when my mom <laughs> said, I ain't raising no no nobody else's babies. That's funny. And then, like years later, you know, 20 years later, she's probably thinking the exact same thing. So I wouldn't bank on that. That's funny.
0: So in the uh, report by uh, New America, that's the think tank that came out with this uh, study. It says an effective system should be built on three pillars, affordable cost, Mm -hmm. uh, high quality and easy availability. So that's obviously some of the challenges also, Uh, you know, are the kids learning anything when they're in the environment that they're in? Are they just there just to be watched and be safe? Um, you know and it, it if you can't actually get the kid to where they need to be then that's also another different hurdle and then um, it also said that 20% of the family surveyed have more than one child care arrangement on any given week so that means they're like this is like people are using a patchwork of child care scenarios um, you know to figure it out Interestingly, interestingly enough this has come up in the presidential election right and uh, I guess apparently the story I read, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton wants to cap the cost of childcare at no more than ten percent of the family's income, up to a certain amount, and then she also wants to guarantee twelve weeks of paid family leave and universal pre-K for four-year-olds. So I guess like getting kids in school earlier than That's what... ambitious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It
1: is well, ambitious. I mean, so how do you cap it at ten percent of a family's income, like? You can't cap health insurance completely based on income as it stands now. So how could you cap childcare costs? Is it like the government is going to step in? Yeah, and cover I don't the know. difference. I don't know. If I like, if I live in Massachusetts, for example, right, we're at right. sixteen plus a year for one kid. Mm-hmm. So we're talking more than ten percent of my income unless I make one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, right? So the right. average American who lives in Massachusetts. It's gonna be more than 10% of whatever your take home pay is. Right. But is the government gonna step in and like who's pay covering the extra $8,000? Or like, how does this whole thing actually happen? Right. Um, and, and if that's her plan, I'm 100% sure on the other side, Trump ain't having <laughs> nothing to do with the government stepping in and paying half of anything. Right. Uh,
0: and Trump's plan uh, is actually that he would let women who have babies collect six weeks of unemployment benefits uh, if their employers don't offer paid leave. So that's a little bit more of a scaled back situation. That's a lot
1: more of a scaled back situation. <laughs> that, that basically says your employer has the right to fire you and allow you to collect six weeks of unemployment.
0: Oh, that is what it says. That's what it that sounds like
1: to me. It probably looks real flowery and you know, but it, it sounds... Yeah, and unemployment benefits are good. That's right. not, if your employer doesn't offer paid leave so if your employer offers even one week of paid leave let's say right Mm -hmm. that means that you wouldn't get this benefit that's too many caveats well it's Donald (laughs) Trump (laughs) Donald Trump Donald
0: Trump national treasure Donald Trump Uh, so that's an interesting story it's not motivating me to go down that baby making uh, I mean you just gotta I, I will say this as far as the quote unquote millennial generation those of us who are coming into adulthood now I think we're gonna end up being the ones who have like the shortage of kids. It'll be like it'll be a bunch of people with one and two kids, and that's it. It'll it's be people with more degrees than they have kids. Yes, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. So that was the first story. And real smart, lonely society. <laughs> so we're gonna take a real quick music break. We're gonna hear what uh, our in-house producer Beats by Beeman has for us this week. Let's go. Damn money, the podcast. Uh, we just got through talking about how expensive it is to have your kid taken care of while you're at work, uh, and so we're not going to pivot to a, another story that's actually interesting and very much connected. A new study by uh, TD Bank—it's their second annual love and money survey—where they found that couples are happier when they talk about money. Isn't that interesting? Go figure. Isn't that interesting? That's what we preach here at Manager Damn Money. Talk about money
1: you'll be happier. well if you think about it just in the general sense right how often do you think couples break up and divorce over money issues I mean I think that's like the number one right reason by a long shot I would imagine right I don't know exactly what the number is but I'm gonna venture out there and just say it's got to be at least 50% of like all marriages that end as a end over financial situations right
0: so so the study um, or the survey I should say it's probably a more accurate way to describe it Uh, said that 78% of couples who talk weekly about money say they're happy as opposed to 60% of Couples who talk every few months about money and 50% who talk even less frequently Um, And it actually said that 60 62% of Americans talk about money with their partner at least once a week uh, But actually Millennials communicated with their couples about money more often. So I think as as you go back in the generations Money is talked about less right Uh, According to the study, it says uh, boomers were likely to combine their funds, 64 percent, combine their funds, I guess, 64 percent of the time. And millennials were less likely to combine their money uh, at a rate of like 37 percent, which is also interesting. So millennials compared to older people are more likely to keep their
1: money split apart but we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. So dude. we're Just open don't. about being stingy <laughs> instead of... Don't touch my money, but we can talk about it. Right.
0: <laughs> oh, man. That's mad funny. I didn't even like think of it like that.
1: Oh, well, you know, I always have kind of like the sideways uh, <laughs> uh, way of looking at how things play out. But so here's what... I actually read like deep into the, the um, TD study because I was like really... Interested in the statistics behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the key things that I thought was pretty big was the f- and as it pertains to millennials, I noticed in there that uh, millennials are 2.5 times more likely than any other generation to have met their current spouse or significant other online. Oh wow! So it also says in there that folks who met online. 64% of the time, they discussed finances either immediately after meeting right, or before they actually met in person. Wow. So that probably has a huge amount to do with why we're so comfortable having conversations about money. So uh-huh. if, you're com- if you're comfortable having a conversation with a complete stranger right. over the computer about-, about what their pockets look like. <laughs> And your views, yeah. I mean, hey, you're absolutely comfortable having a conversation with somebody who's sitting next to you talking about what their pockets look like. I would imagine. I don't know. It's it's interesting because what this is
0: suggesting is that as we progressed as an American society, we're getting better with each generation at actually talking about the the thing that I guess we try to avoid talking about.
1: Right. Um, Well, I mean, if you think about it, though, it's probably a lot easier to talk about money when the conversation starts off with debt, right? Sure. Like, it's kind of like a widely accepted and expected thing that our generation just has an abundance of debt because of school. Oh, yeah, that's true. So, you kind of start off the conversation with, hey, girl, how much debt you got? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, you're essentially, within your first few dates, trying to figure out, if I was to go down this road with this person... How much damage is it going to do? Well, not only that... Versus how much damage am I going to do them, right? Like, if I got my own, you know, undergrad and grad degrees that I've paid for and that sort of thing.
0: And and I was going to say, not only that, um, it's also that the... I mean, student loans is, like, at this point,
1: a universal truth for millennials who went to college. Right. But still, inside of that same study that we're talking about, it had in there the percentage of folks who like keep financial secrets from their mate, And? And so like as far as millennials are concerned 90% say they don't have any secrets regarding Damn. finances. But when I'm looking at boomers you've got 73% who say no they don't keep secrets from their
0: So it's spouses. a significant percentage more who keep financial secrets from their spouse as an
1: older person. Right. The question is just are you currently keeping a a secret, a financial secret from your spouse? So 10% of millennials said yes, Uh and 27% of uh, boomers said yes. (laughs) So if you just look at that, right? And then the next question on there was about like, how willing would you be to forgive your partner if you found out that they were keeping a a financial secret? And so again, 29% of uh, millennials said, eh, I guess I could get over it, essentially. And then 78% of boomers said... Nah, hell nah. Nah. (laughs) Nah. You gotta go. So that shows you kind of some of the disparity there, right? And I don't know how many of these people are lying because they're not in the position to have to make the decision. But that kind of tells you also the mentality of, you know, the different generations when it comes to stuff like that. So, you know. Absolutely. And I think that's, to me, the most interesting thing that
0: there's a clear difference in approach Mm -hmm. and a clear difference in the way that that one generation views the way that you're supposed to deal with the subject
1: and the way another one is is finding a way to deal with it. But then, I mean, I think that is a conversation that you want to obviously have, right? At Mm -hmm. some point within the confines of the dating phase. Absolutely. And, And not once you're already married, living together and, and then I would, finally
0: asked. I like, would definitely recommend it. I, I didn't tell my wife how much student loan debt I had until like long like we recently had the conversation where I showed my shame <laughs> where I took off the clothes and was like oh, here it is
1: So you didn't tell her what she was buying until she was she already knew, buying. Like,
0: she knew like vaguely but I had never like done full disclosure, here's the actual number. Right. Um and I don't know that I We've had theoretical discussions about money. I think prior to, but I think that's one of the things she said. She she would say is like, yeah, we probably could have spent some more time talking about that just on some like understanding level, uh, type discussions. Right. I don't think it would have changed anything, but I think it was it, when I showed her the number. I, I I'm I'm ashamed.
1: Like, <laughs> well, that's probably why you never brought it up because you didn't want to have to think about it yourself.
0: Well, and truth be told, I just realized because I we we did like our. For the first time, we kind of went through our, uh, uh, an aggressive plan for like what we're going to do financially and whatnot, how we're going to pay off these student loans, and I realized even to be somebody who created a thing called Manage Your Damn Money, I was really
1: trying to avoid thinking about how much student loan debt I had. So, here's something that's actually really cool. Inside of that same study we're talking about, mm-hmm. 73% of couples between 18 and 34 make and follow a budget at least weekly right 65 percent right. of couples 35 to 54 same thing okay only 53 percent of couples <laughs> over the age of 55 make and follow a budget so, so they're just doing whatever yeah every few weeks <laughs> they're just you know winging it right like so it, it's interesting because i think that then tells you that they're probably not sharing accounts because you would know what was coming in and going out uh, at that same rate if you were pooling your assets
0: together. I don't think so. Some people just spend without paying attention. Really? Yeah. Like I. Yeah. Yes. Oh God.
1: Especially older people. See, I, I don't know. I obviously, as you know, I'm not married yet, so I don't have any joint accounts with anybody. So I don't know. The operative that. word there, Malcolm, was yet. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, at some point I'm going to grow up and be an adult <laughs> and like, you know, yeah. um, but s- s- to use my own situation for an example, right? Okay. So say m- me and my girlfriend get married, right? Mm-hmm. It then makes sense for us to have joint accounts, right? At least one. Right. But we don't necessarily have to just combine everything. everything. And like, you know, I think the whole yours, mine and ours approach probably makes like my wife's parents, everything goes into one pot.
0: Really. And this is everything you you just said in that study mm-hmm. fits them to a T. Like they it fits. The shoe fits. Just so, in terms of just in terms of my understanding of how they approach things. Uh, it's not a separate account. It's all put in one. Um, I, I wouldn't say that my father in law recognizes when my mother in law gets gas. Right. Like I wouldn't I would I don't think he's looking
1: like that at the online account. He might look at the statement. So I know you are equally as much of a Martin fan as I am, so you'll appreciate this one. You remember the episode when Martin and Gina opened a joint account? Nah, you got. And they were like putting money into the cookie jar and then fighting over who could buy what with the money. I don't remember what. Oh my God! I mean, Martin. Martin is a lot of times on on in here. here. So, so the reason I brought that up is because that was my parents to a T when they first got married. They had a joint account uh-huh. and they combined their, uh, uh, resources and, you know, after like six months, it just was like, never again, <laughs> just, they completely like shut down the account, took the money out. And ever since then they fit into this category of 55 plus year old people who are like, hell no, like, that, is, <laughs> that is essentially, right. uh, so it's interesting that, that, You know you get two separate dynamics within the same generation of people we're talking about absolutely absolutely so definitely
0: interesting story i'm sure we could talk about that forever but we're going to take one more quick music break um beats by Beam, and see what he has and when we come back we'll get malcolm's money minute we'll be right back
1: sense to lease or buy. As with most financial decisions of this nature, the most important factor is your time horizon. How long do you plan to be in this vehicle? Are you a person who for whatever reason needs to drive a new model car every couple of years? Or are you the type to buy a car and hang on to it for as long as possible? If you chose the former, then the answer is probably yes, go find yourself a great leasing program and don't look back. However. If you chose the latter, then the answer is equally as obvious. Buy yourself a car that has all the bells and whistles your wallet can afford and pay it off as quickly as possible. But for the folks who fall somewhere in the middle, the decision isn't as cut and dry. A couple of key things to consider, unless you're talking about buying a new model car, the comparison isn't really apples to apples, as dealers will only allow you to lease new model vehicles. And then aside from your monthly budget, what are your other key priorities? Is it more important to you to put money down, pay minimal interest, or own the asset? In general, financial experts say buying and keeping a new car for the long term is the better deal, especially if the car you're buying has a track record of lasting, for a while, great resale value, and low maintenance and fuel costs. However, when you lease, your monthly payments will likely be cheaper than if you buy. But keep in mind that when you walk away at the end of the lease, you won't have anything to show for it. And if you can't afford to make your lease payments or you want to end your lease early, you'll pay a pretty hefty penalty. But whichever way you decide to go, make sure that you do your research on the car as well as the dealer. The more research you do in advance, the better you'll do when it comes time to negotiate those terms. And yes, you can even negotiate terms when it comes to leasing a vehicle, so make sure you brush up. I'm Malcolm Etheridge and this has been your Money Minute. Where we answer your questions about all things money. So send in your questions to info at com, and we'll answer them right here on the show.
0: That's interesting because my wife and I, we just leased a car not too long ago. Really? After having a really bad experience with her 2008 BMW, kind of like, I think it was 2008. It broke down. It had like a whole bunch of oil sludge in it. Oh, it the oil change, oil hadn't been changed and probably a couple years and yeah it, it, it was just complete negligence and and i don't we weren't married for the majority of the time right so i hadn't adopted that car as my like <laughs> responsibility yet okay so it was like i hadn't you know when you have a car you have like those that idea especially it's like if, if you've had a, a used or a older car you know at certain points certain things need to happen right I hadn't clicked on to that with her car for whatever reasons. I always regretted that too because we went through a crazy headache with um, the shop that I was sitting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, all that to say, I think the way we decided was like, I mean, we'll just pay this. You're going to pay car insurance anyway. okay So you put that aside. And I think we just decided like, if you have to pay anything, it's better to just pay it like, because it's like it's a car. If this isn't something that I'm buying, for it to increase in its value it's right de- it's literally depreciating so if i'm going to, if i'm if I'm paying into something that's not going to increase in value, I might as well pay into something that's reliable that'll get me to and from where I have to go.
1: Well, it has reliably. a little bit to do with personality too yeah like my girlfriend leases I own. Right. Just by nature, I like owning assets. So (laughs) for me, it's like buy the car that you can pay off within three years. Uh And then you don't have to pay for a car for, you know, six, seven, eight years. That's fair. That's essentially what my plan has always been. Buy a Japanese car that you can drive into the ground (laughs) and that's going to last you for like 15 years. Right, Pay it off within the first three Uh and then you don't have any headache as far as, like, how am I going to pay for this car and factor it into my budget and all right. that kind of what stuff. What about maintenance, though? I just said, buy a Japanese car. <laughs> that <you can> <laughs>
0: oh, that's, that the was ground. the
1: key. So, here's also right. what's interesting, right, where you were talking about, like, keeping up with the maintenance and all that kind of stuff, uh-huh. and you're the one who normally would be on top of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I could care less. Like, I get the oil changed when I get it changed, or I get new tires when I get new tires. My girlfriend is on top of that stuff, like, oh, uh, because she's kind of responsible for making sure the car stays in great shape because the leasing Cause the company lease. wants to make sure that you are res- in at every single interval and right. blah blah blah. And I'm like, man, I you know, what's another 500 miles? I'll get an oil change when I get it, so you know, absolutely
0: interesting. Well, that's good stuff again. Uh, if you have a question about money, send your question to info at com, And we'll do our best, or Malcolm will do his best to answer. Uh, and actually, our final story for this episode that we're looking at. Uh, Kevin Hart recently had some news. He has a new movie coming out that's going to be out this next week. Um, what I'm excited
1: about it, actually.
0: Yeah, it's another one of his stand-up movies. Yeah, what is it? What now? Yeah. And he ha- had some news that was reported widely that he just surpassed Jerry Seinfeld as the highest earning comedian, Jeez. Uh, having in one year banked eighty seven point five million dollars, um, and then so the story the story I read uh, this was basically between June twenty fifteen mm-hmm. and June twenty sixteen that they actually like recorded how much he made. Okay, and during that time, Seinfeld, who you don't ever see, and who all you really see is reruns of Seinfeld. Like I don't really know what Jerry Seinfeld is doing currently. It's he not probably like, produces stuff. Yeah, he he's did. behind the scenes at this point. Um, but he earned, in that same span, from June 2015 to June 2016, $43.5 million. Well, Netflix
1: bought the Seinfeld package really? for... Like a million dollars an episode. Oh my so god! So he and Larry David walked away with a pretty Ooh. sizable sum, even at that point. So Ooh. there's probably some residual baked into that too.
0: Seinfeld was one of those shows that my mom would always have on, and I didn't understand it right until I grew up. Right, that, I couldn't stand Seinfeld until like maybe four years ago. <laughs> that and Frasier. If I watch Frasier now, I'm actually laughing. So Not that I've seen it in a while, but that like, just like, tells I get you it
1: wasn't for you. <laughs>
0: At that age, right. exactly, um, and actually, those numbers that I gave are pre-tax numbers. So that's like before Uncle Sam gets his cut. And at that level, eighty-seven point five million, Uncle Sam's getting almost half of that. Yeah. Uncle Sam getting fifty percent at that point, right?
1: At that at that level, um, but you also have to consider. Mm -hmm. How much work so we're talking about Seinfeld being behind the scenes and collecting residuals and whatever because that's really what he's doing And he basically made half of what Kevin Hart did right right so you have to consider Within that period Kevin Hart did at least a hundred shows right sold out concerts and whatever 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 so you got to consider also how much effort was put into making that money versus how much effort was put into just collecting your residuals and so living off the land here's the uh, here, <laughs>
0: here's the caveat with uh with i think with was it is it kevin kevin yeah so yeah you're right he played a hundred shows during that time each of which nets i think about a million or something like that um
1: probably about a hundred million hundred is it a hundred
0: hundred million each yeah
1: it, well In total he's made almost a hundred million right but each outlet he does Uh each night he does a show probably pays him a million a show so then a hundred shows times a million a show so he's right Uh, which is
0: that's a lot of work and then of course he still does movies Mm -hmm. Uh, he still does like you know TV shows he does a show um, got a crazy work
1: ethic yeah it's
0: like he's actually everywhere working really hard people talk about I'm tired of Kevin Hart he's everywhere Right,
1: but it's like I mean you
0: gotta have a little motor
1: well like he says everybody wanna be famous but nobody wants to put the work in right man he's putting in the work serious work um, and
0: actually the interesting thing he actually, the story mentioned that I read he pulls a bigger cut from his shows mm-hmm. because he doesn't have a, a, it's not a huge production taking the James Brown approach it's just like him you know lights you know bar stool they said and water and He's taking everything else home. He's paying his people obviously
1: right, but he also puts up the money to produce the shows like Beyonce does that now Right, and so that's
0: the think. other caveat. Uh,
1: he's but he's been doing that for a while now though where he
0: under I think it's called Heartline Productions mm-hmm. um, uh, produces most if not all of his movies and
1: Whatever it is that he's doing it so he's he funds it, and then he also reaps the total benefit. Yeah, so you take on the risk, which really isn't a risk for you at this point. Like Kevin Hart, Beyonce, Floyd Mayweather, you know, these are people who know you're coming to see them. Right. So they can put up, you know, millions of dollars as front money for the show, Mm -hmm. knowing that they'll recoup it on the back end based off the strength of their name. But it's amazing to me that you still have folks who are at that status, you know, or close. Mm -hmm. Like Drake, let's say, for example, Mm -hmm. who still doesn't own their own production doesn't own like so think about how much money he's giving up just for the luxury of being able to sit back and show up where he's supposed to show up put on the show and then go home it's
0: interesting you brought up Drake because the interesting story I just read was that chance the rapper isn't mm-hmm. he's not signed to a label right and he everything that he does he's that's becoming the standard is to be independent an independent artist
1: look at Solange her album is blowing up. And she is going to eat the majority of all of what comes from that album just based on uh, word of mouth hype. Like, right. You know, I, I never saw a commercial for a salon job <laughs> there, and I'm listening to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, so.
0: Right. Interesting. So Kevin Hart is getting paid major dividends by his comedic profession. Good for him. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Uh, and that brings us to the close of this episode of Manage Your Damn Money, the podcast. Uh, we want to remind you that you can read the full of all these stories on our Facebook page. We'll be posting. Those are posted. Um, and if you want to learn more about what we do at Manage Your Damn Money, just visit us at www.manageyourdamnmoney.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, my handle is M-Y-D-M-1, the number one. And you, Malcolm? Uh, just Malcolm on money on all social media excellent excellent so we want to thank you once again for having joined us for this incredible discussion about money thanks for having press play and we'll see you next time